Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. For centuries, women have been looking for a cape and have instead been handed an apron. It's only recently that we've learned how to swing our aprons around Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Let it flutter on our backs and take us to the sky. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Once again, here on Short Black, we're going to feature one of the finalists in this year's Australian Women's Weekly Women of the Future Awards. And it's my great pleasure to welcome Manny Corverma from Vera Brave Girl. G'day, Manny. Thanks for joining us here at Short Black. Thank you, Sandra. It's such an honour for me to be a finalist for the iconic Women's Weekly Awards. Thank you for having me on your podcast today. Well, congratulations. It is an achievement. What is Vera Brave Girl? Tell me all about it. Um, yeah, sure. Firstly, um, before I get into Vera, I want to really celebrate every person who's worked selflessly in the domestic violence landscape to make a difference in the lives of others. To every person who supported, encouraged and believed a domestic violence victim, keep doing what you're doing uh, because our nation is in a better place today because of your actions. And I really want to thank every woman who's had the courage to share her story, to relive the traumas inflicted upon her and to be determined and committed to make a difference. I believe that we're at one of those defining moments in history a moment when the world is at war with COVID-19, our economy is in turmoil, and unfortunately, it is the women of this nation that are the most vulnerable. Today, on average, a woman a week is murdered by a current or former partner. That's one woman every week. So Vera was born with a mission of creating an empowered environment for migrant women who have been the subject of domestic violence. We have five key goals, and they are equality, education, empower, access to justice and advocacy. So let me just tell you sort of a background as to the word Vera. The word finds its roots in the Punjabi term, which means a brave girl, sort of like a warrior. Is it through your role as a lawyer that this has become your passion project based on what you've seen? Um, I think it's, as a lawyer, I've come across so many women and that's the reason that it has really been brought to my attention. But having said that, I think from the background that I come from, it is a topic that it's so deep rooted and it is a topic that I've sort of become aware from the culture, from the conditioning, from the, you know, um, the way we're raised as girls in India and in, in the Indian culture. As a lawyer, when I deal with a lot of these women and most of these women are migrant, 
I can understand that it's so different and the concept is so different for Indian women or migrant women as compared to the Western world. So yes, I think it is, it has really been brought to my attention because um, of my profession as a lawyer. Well, abuse takes many forms and, and most Australians are aware that we have a significant problem when it comes to domestic violence and abuse. And it's the definition of that for so many people that gets blurred. Are you saying that migrant women in Australia uh, suffer even worse? Well, I, I wouldn't say that they suffer more. That's not the idea. I think what uh, I'm trying to say or what we're trying to achieve with Vera is we've realised and there's re- recent research and studies that have also picked this up that the Western way of dealing with domestic violence may not necessarily be the most appropriate way for migrant women. And we need to understand that at the intersection of violence and migration, the experiences of these women are very unique. And we need to be able to, to really effectively have an impact. We need to be able to relate to them. We need to be able to understand the cultural norms. You know, the reasons why is it the way that they experience certain things? Why is it the way that they don't act in certain ways? I remember when I became a lawyer about six years ago, I used to say to some of these women, you know, why don't you just leave? But now I understand that it's not as simple as leaving. Like once we need to have that cultural lens, we need to understand, you know, the concepts of honor, shame, the cultural stigma around divorce. Uh, even uh, even within some societies, it's actually thought um, these negative connotations about getting legal advice. So I think we, we really need to put on that lens and try to think about from their perspective, from that cultural perspective, and then try and tackle that problem. I can't see a solution in the short term because it's all about education and access to the right people. In your work, what sort of support are you finding? What we wanted to focus on is the rebuilding aspect because that's really where my experience is and that's really where we see a lot of these women. Um, So we wanted to build upon that. So, of course, the first point is to raise awareness as to what family violence is in tailored and targeted material. But the second aspect of that is to then provide them training courses and to equip them with essential skills to allow them to transition out of abusive relationships. And we intend to do that through courses that we may develop in-house and other courses that we'll be collaborating with other charity partners that will give them the essential skills Like if I tell you, Sandra, I've had women come to my office that wouldn't know how to leave their home and open a bank account, wouldn't know how to get a Mikey, just the basics that we take for granted, they would not know. Because if you think about the background, a lot of these women have come to Australia on spouse visas. They've been dependent on their husbands and partners. They don't have a social circle in Australia. They don't have any networks. They're heavily reliant on their partner. So when their partner is abusive, they have nowhere to go. They don't know how to, you know, start all over again. They don't know how to begin. And there's no financial independence at all? Not at all. And it, and the, the problem is a lot of these times they, they own matrimonial property, which often is the case, is in husband and wife's name. So they've got an asset in their name, but they have no way of accessing it. They have no bank accounts. They have no way of drawing the money. And because they've got an asset in their name, they cannot access legal service. They cannot access pro bono legal aid. So that's the reason the third aspect of VERA is to provide them access to legal services without an asset test. Because a lot of the, a lot of the time they have um, assets in their name but no ability to access it. And how do you hope to promote what you're doing? Because it's very worthwhile and clearly it's aimed to help a lot of people but they've got to find you. How are they going to find you? 
That's correct. And I think uh, with my past experience when I worked with the Sikh community, I think the most effective way is to really reach out to these women in settings that they're most comfortable in. For example, with the Sikh women, a lot of us go to the Gurdwara on Sundays, which is like the Sikh temple. So we want to reach these women through the settings that they're more likely to open up and speak about these matters. So we'll be collaborating with other charity partners, with um, you know other communities, and trying to really investigate what are these forums, where can we reach these women. Social media, I've got an idea in my head in terms of uh, perhaps even going to the fashion industry and you know trying to reach these women not in traditional settings, but settings that they're more likely to feel comfortable in. So you're an Indian-born Australian, a lawyer, an advocate, a wife, and a mother of two children. Education is the key. What do you tell your kids about what you're doing and how do you hope to help them understand what they should tolerate and what they shouldn't in terms of a relationship? Yeah, it's actually quite fascinating. This is something I've been thinking about for quite a while. That a lot of the time as parents, we're always concerned about, you know, how do we raise our children right? What do we tell them? But it actually doesn't matter what we tell them because they, they watch us so closely. They observe us so well. So I think, I I don't think I need to teach the kids anything. I think I just need to lead the right way because a lot of the time they really just pick that up. And for my daughter, I mean, uh, when I was growing up, I've got a younger sister, so we're just two sisters. And a lot of people in Australia may not understand this, but in India, it's a big um, thing. It's a big part of our lives that a lot of the time we were always asked, you know, why is it that you know, my parents were always asked, you know, you guys are young. Why don't you try for another son? Why is it that you only have two daughters? And my parents always firmly said that my daughters are like my sons. They're going to have the same opportunity that would be available to a son. And that's the reason we migrated to Australia, because he wanted to ensure that we would have the same opportunities, because that may not have been possible back in India. So we've always been grown up with a sense of independence, a sense of, you know, our opinion matters. And I think that's the, that's the idea that I want to really inhibit into my daughter, that her voice really matters. And a lot of the time, we don't need to tell them, they just watch what we're doing and they, they learn from that and they, they want to lead the same way. Recently, um, my daughter actually submitted, she's six years old, and she submitted a speech for um, Raise Our Voices Australia. And that was read in the parliament and she's actually going to be published in a magazine, a kids magazine as well. Wow. Yeah. And it's, it's just amazing. It's so ironic as well. Um, and that speech was all about, you know, that she wanted to see more people that look like her on TV. And so it's just things like that. I don't think we need to teach them. I think they really look at what we're doing, what our opinions are. And not that we want to influence our opinions upon them, but they, they understand that really well. So as long as we lead the right way, and as long as you know every action that we take, we consider what impact is it having on them. If they watch us, what are they going to think? And I think that's, that's just really the way. It's so true when they say you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. It's so important, really, to make sure that everyone is represented and has opportunity. Yeah, and I think it's important that, you know, and when we have those opportunities, we acknowledge that we're in a privileged position and we use it to help others because it's not really about your individual ambition it's about the collective purpose and you know the larger sort of motive to make sure that um, everyone has a voice and we are truly represented. I came across a shop just recently that works in the migrant women's space it's a fashion retailer it really highlighted to me and brought it home the issues that migrant women have specifically 
Uh, you know, when they arrive here, there's a language barrier, often a financial impediment and a skill set. And a lot of them, for example, know how to sew. So this particular shop brings migrant women in, has a sewing room upstairs and they, and they get the fabric donated and they teach them how to sew commercially as opposed to, you know, just at home. And uh, those that don't want to sew, they learn retail downstairs in, at the shop front. And it's that upskilling that provides a profound opportunity for them that they simply can't get anywhere else because they can't get a job because they've never had a job. That's right. And I think that that's exactly the idea. And migration can be such a positive thing. Like even for my own family, if I look at my background, if you look at my parents even, my father came from a really well-educated academic family and education was so highly valued. Whereas my mother came from a different background and she hadn't studied much. But having said that, when we came to Australia, she had the same opportunities available to her as my father. I mean, for years they worked together in the same job, earning the same amount of money. So migration can be a really positive outcome for a lot of women, but for some it's not. And I think it's really about acknowledging that, acknowledging that we've got this privileged position. Let's help others that haven't had that success story. To make your work successful, you've got to get a lot of support professionally and across the board. How do you hope to do that? And what sort of support have you received from fellow lawyers, for example, providing that critical pro bono legal support that so many women need? Yeah, actually, I'm really grateful. We've had a lot of good feedback. A lot of support has been extended out to us. I think a lot of lawyers are willing to put in the hours. And if you actually think about it, it's not a lot of hours if we have enough lawyers on board. And we've got this national pro bono um, target that our firm is a part of. And a lot of law firms, I think they've got over, I want to say, over 200 different firms in Victoria that have signed up. So a lot of lawyers are really willing to put in the time and give their services for pro bono. So, yeah, I think we've had a lot of support. It's just, it's really about just um, reaching out and telling them about what we're doing and sort of signing them up. So I think in that regard, we've had a lot of success and we've had a lot of support extended, not just from the legal profession, even just generally. I've had a lot of people approach me, you know, who are running other sort of programs and that could possibly assist in helping these women. What sort of response have you had from government agencies? I'm actually working with one, um, but not that. So I'm working with a woman that works in a government agency because I worked with her in a previous project, and she's been very supportive, to be honest. But we're not we're not there yet. We're not there that we haven't really reached out enough yet. So I think we're just sort of finalising things from our end, getting the foundations right, and then we will be reaching out to more agencies. But I think it is true um, that we need to collaborate with private and public groups to be able to have a real meaningful impact. calling for legislative reform about specifically who's able to complain of domestic violence. Can you just elaborate on that angle for me? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've noticed a lot um, as a lawyer is when people walk into the office, I've had like parents walk in and say, well, I can see that my daughter is suffering. I can see that she's being subjected to family violence. 
but yet they're not able to complain. It is only up to the victim to go to the police and make that complaint and get the IVO. The bystanders cannot. And I think that can be really difficult at times when you're so oppressed and you're, so, you're in such a vulnerable position, it can be really difficult to make that step. I would like to see some sort of change in that regard as to who has capacity to make these complaints. But how practical is that really? I mean, if the victim themselves aren't willing to come forward and make a direct complaint, you as a lawyer would see some pretty big impediments to that progressing, I wonder. That's right, but I think it's not really a, it's not really about the action that may follow later on. It's really about the bystanders being able to make a complaint, the police working with the victim. Because sometimes it's not that they don't want to make a statement. Sometimes it's just that they don't... For example, they may be stuck at home and not able to get out and make that statement. Sometimes they're reluctant for, you know, various reasons. But I would like to really move away from this, you know, the criminal justice response framework to more of a recovery framework where the police works with the victims or works with these families and, you know, sort of touches base. There needs to be some sort of program that we can work with them to encourage them to come forward and perhaps not make a statement but at least tell their story and you know, take some sort of action so they can be in a better place. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And like you say, maybe it's not legislative reform, but working with the police so that there is some sort of avenue where they can be contacted and that door opened, I guess, for them. Yeah, that's right. And I think that's that's the idea. I mean, a lot of women, I from my own experiences, when I've met some of these women, they're so scared to go to the police. And a lot of the time they will take out an intervention order and the next thing you know, a day later, they've, they've been served with one that their husband has taken out against them, you know, and they don't want to go through the, the court system and trying to defend an intervention order. So a lot of the time, they're so reluctant to even seek help because of the consequences that may follow later on. So I think we really need to, we really need to work with these women and explain to them the processes and the police need to be seen as someone they can trust because a lot of the time, that's not ha- the perception. Abuse takes many forms, as I mentioned earlier. What's the most significant form of abuse that you see coming in your front door? Yeah, I think a lot of the time it is coercive control. A lot of the time I feel, and it's it's funny, we talk about some stories and, you know, and even women are so reluctant to label it as domestic violence. It's just like, well, he didn't slap me, but, you know, um, I, you know, I don't have access to money or he takes all the money from my account and puts it in his account. As soon as my pay comes in, it goes into his account. So it's this, these sort of behaviours, and a lot of the time, they're just so conditioned to believe that this is the way life is. And that's the reason, like, I had done a project previously with the, the Sikh community, because what we were seeing, a lot of these women were complaining. They were unhappy, but they w- wouldn't label it as domestic violence. And they would open up and talk about these things with uh, Sikh faith leaders at temples, And a lot of the time they were sort of just being told, well, you know, this is the way family works. This is the way married life works. This sort of concept of, you know, self-sacrifice. So I think that's the core of it. And that's the reason we'd run that project to raise awareness of what family violence is and that this controlling behavior, this coercive control is a part of family violence and it is not okay. Um, And we raised that with uh, Sikh faith leaders so that we did training programs that were run by In Touch and Wise and Anu was a girl that did a lot of the training programs. So we did all that to sort of raise awareness with Sikh faith leaders so that when people would approach them, they would be able to provide the right guidance. But I think, yeah, again, it comes back to the cultural practices as well. You know, you've been conditioned to believe that this is the way life is. 
Clearly in the last year, the cases of Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame being made Australian of the Year has elevated these discussion points about not just coercive control but sexual assault, abuse, etc. Does that permeate into those other cultures, do you think, in Australia? Do you think those examples are openly discussed amongst migrant women? Does it resonate? Well, I think, I mean, it's, it, those examples have been brilliant in bringing the, these issues to the forefront. But I think these matters have existed for so long. And the discussions, there's just so much hesitancy within um, the migrant community that I've seen to even talk about these issues. And yes, we look at like Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame and we sort of see them as distant. Like we just sort of see, you know, these are women from a migrant perspective, powerful women who've been given and so much courage and so much bravery that they've shown. But it's not the same for migrants. I think a lot of the time the migrant women just, they have so many... Um, there's layers and layers of reasons as to why they cannot complain, why they cannot come forward. They're scared about losing their permanent residency. They're scared about so many other issues. You know, they've got a child, and if they left the husband, they wouldn't know how to find work and pay international fees for this child to go to school. So there's so many layers to the problem that they face. So I think a lot of the time it's sort of like, well, I'll rather endure this than come forward. You really flesh out so many aspects of the term abuse. It's not just physical, it's financial, it's emotional. And as you say, people are trapped in a cultural sort of constraint. If you won the Australian Women's Weekly Woman of the Future Award, how would it help you? Yeah, if we won the award, um, I think we would use the bursary to develop these training programs and to develop tailored material to reach out to these women. Um, we'll be t- and we'll be talking to you know other cultural groups, and we'll be working with them to really to really develop the physical material that we can hand out to women, and to sort of you know go out and reach out to them. Um, so that's really the idea of where we would put the funding first, and then eventually, I mean, this is a long-term project, and this is something that is going to require a lot of resources. But that's really where we would put the initial funding towards the training courses, so we can start you know making them available to the women. Well, if people want to find out more, they can go to the website, vera.org.au. I love that you've written Vera finds its root in the Punjabi term, which means a girl who's brave. Did it take you long to remember that word or is it a commonly used word in your culture? No, it it is a word that actually means a lot to me. My son, when he was born, uh, we were going to name him Vera, uh, just Veer, um, which means the boy version of that. When my daughter was born, we actually thought about naming her Vera. The word is, it essentially, you know, um, means a warrior. So it is a word that has um, always meant something to me. And I think before, you know, I just, I recently sort of come across this um, quote that has really stayed with me that I feel like I must share with you. For centuries, women have been looking for a cape and have instead been handed an apron. It's only recently that we've learned how to swing our aprons around let it flutter on our backs and take us to the sky. So I say to the women out there who've been subjected to family violence, I hear you, I believe you, and please do not let anyone silence your rage. And I say to the men and young boys who seek to induce terror and control in the lives of others, I say to you, you cannot outlast us, you cannot break us, we will defeat you, for we are Veras. I love that, Manny. That's given me chills. (laughs) Thank you. It really, it really has. I mean, there's been so many examples over the last however many years of women really standing 
tall and finding their voices and using the sisterhood to be courageous, you know, and it's people like you who can make a profound difference. I applaud you for your efforts, Manny, and congratulate you and and thank you on behalf of all the women I know because if it isn't for warriors like you, we're never going to make that difference. And the migrant communities in Australia need specific help and you've really helped us understand here today why programs need to be tailored specifically for them. So thank you so much. I wish you all the best. I'm sure you'll be a great success. Thank you, Sandra. Thank you so much for all your encouragement. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.